You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Fish, and I make music for a living. What do Justin Timberlake, Prince, New Kids on the Block, Christina Aguilera, Stevie Wonder, Boys to Men, Backstreet Boys, Drew Hill, Adina Menzel, Lady Antebellum, Dropkick Murphys, TLC, Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, Mary J. Blige, and Sir Elton John have in common? When they need a guitarist, none of them call me, but they all call Fish. Here's my chat with Michael Fish Heron. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to find myself. So um, You got time. Or find, find or define. Yeah, I got plenty of time. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my name is Michael Herring. I've, I've, been, I've been called Fish most of my life, kind of an old family nickname. Well, it's good you know that part. Um, yeah, I, 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 I focused on that and, and uh, you know, I can answer that question definitively. I've spent my entire life playing guitar. You know, I, well, I started on violin when I was five. Growing up in Philadelphia, I, you know, there was so much great music back then, you know, growing up in the 70s. And I just, I wanted to play guitar, especially the first time I heard the Beatles. I was like, ah, I want to play like that. I don't want to play what my grandfather's playing. I want to play, I want to play Beatles. What was your grandfather playing though? My grandfather was a violinist. So he, um, he taught me violin. Then he taught me guitar. And I, when I was seven, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm playing guitar. I, I never really, I never really loved violin. I still don't love it, but I, I got, I got hooked on guitar and everything about it. And I've, I'm still obsessed. What is it about guitar that you love so much? Um, it's a, it's a really, anybody can can have their own voice on it it's interesting to hear you say that because you're known for being one of the most versatile guitarists out there working today it's curious do you have your own voice or do you spend most of your time finding other voices or emulating other voices i think i think at this point i i do put my own voice into it i feel like i do you know i at least others have told me that you know i have a specific sound you know if i've if I'm if I'm gonna play a solo on something, I know it's gonna it's gonna come from me. Not there's gonna there's you know thousands of years of collective influence, but yeah, I think I I I have my own choice of notes and my own you know vibrato. That's the thing I loved about the instrument is it's very expressive, and you can have your own voice on it. You know anybody can walk up to piano and hit one note, and nobody's gonna be able to tell who played that note. Except for maybe Herbie Hancock, you could probably tell if it was Herbie, <laughs> but it's a it's a very unique instrument in that way because it's it's strings and wood. It's strings attached to wood. Intonation is a big deal. You know how hard you press the note, how soft you press the note, how hard you hit the string. Every every little interaction with it is very personal. How did you go about finding your own voice with the guitar? When did you know you had one? You know, I think I think it was more about emulating what I loved. You know, I, I grew up, you know, listening to, of course, all the all the classic rock and and psychedelic rock, and I was, you know, definitely greatly influenced by Hendrix and and the Beatles and the Stones and Santana. But there was the classical aspect too, which I I had to study classical guitar, as as well as studying. You know, I had for years I had two different teachers. I had my classical teacher and then I had, you know, where I was just strictly finger style guitar on the left leg up on a, up on a stool, very proper sitting up straight. And then, you know, I went to a music school for that. I went to settlement music school in Philadelphia. And then, then at home, I think it was every, I think it was every Friday, this guy, Bill would roll up in his orange, orange van (laughs) and, and, and come out smelling like a bong (laughs) And, and and come in the living room and sit and teach me Peter Frampton songs. So I had, I kind of had both, and 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 I think I think that that's always combined because I've always switched between picking and finger style and combining the two, and you know, and and just having the repertoire of the classical stuff. And then I got into you know got into a little bit of flamenco, but but there was always the rock stuff. It was was learning the classical stuff was that part of a deal with your grandfather like you don't have to do violin but you're going to learn the proper way to play guitar yeah for sure yeah i well i also i, I also loved classical guitar you know my i know my grand my grandfather loved he loved classical guitar he loved segovia so he would play segovia all the time and 
you know, play me all the, the records all the time. So I, I would listen to it and I wanted to play that stuff because I thought it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what some of those guys can do. It's, I, I never had, I played guitar. I learned when I was about 16, probably. I just sort of taught myself. I don't really know how to read music, but I kind of, I had a good ear and I could sing. And I basically wanted to get girls. So I thought, hey, guitar is my, my way to do that, obviously. Good way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Except then I realized that, you know, it takes a hell of a lot of practice to get good enough at guitar to seem like you <laughs> can get girls. So, you know, it was, it was kind of flawed logic, but I, I always had slow fingers. I had good rhythm, but, but I couldn't, I could never wail on a guitar. I could never get my fingers moving that fast. I never, I mean, I never practiced. I mean, ultimately I That's never practiced. How often did you practice? When I was a kid, all the time, all the time. I spent, I spent all the time in my room practicing and, you know, practicing the classical stuff, listening to, you know, actually learning stuff off of records you know, drop dropping the needle on a record over and over and over, learning all of the Hendrix stuff, learning all of his solos, then discovering stuff like I, I remember I discovered uh, an Ahmad Jamal record in my mom's closet. I was like, well, what's that? That's jazz. That shit twisted me <laughs> because when I heard that, and and I and I had heard like all the you know all the the soul stuff that was coming out of Philly on the radio. But that that really turned things around, and I got more interested in jazz and funk and R and B and everything that was everything that was happening at that time, plus the roots of uh, the roots of it and blues and and how how rock formed from blues and it it still it still amazes me. It's still it's still a great influence all the time when I think about it. Was this always something you were doing outside of school? Like, was it, was it you know, do math, yeah. reading, writing, arithmetic, and then go home and do guitar? Were you doing music as part of a curriculum in, in school? No, no, no music curriculum in my, uh, in my elementary school. I, I, didn't do, I didn't do music in school until high school. And then you were in the school band? I mean, they must have done uh, standards. I, I, I went to the performing arts high school in Philly. So when, uh, when I auditioned for that, I auditioned strictly classical. And then because I knew it was it was an orchestra, and then uh, I think one I think somebody said, "Oh, here's here's the chart. Can you play this?" And it was more of a like funk jazz kind of thing. And I was like, "Oh yeah, I I, did, I know that stuff. I've been playing all, along with those records. I know all that stuff." So it, it was that 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 school was amazing. But along with with that curriculum in school, where you know I was in the orchestra. I was studying uh, studying theory, studying harmony. Um, I was also taking lessons, taking classical lessons. I had to keep up with my classical lessons while I was in school. That was the deal. Yeah, right. That was part of it. And then once you got out of high school, were you playing in in bands, doing performances outside of school? As yeah, well? I was. I was. I was. I went on the road when I was sixteen, so I was. I was still in high school. Who'd you go on the road with the first time? The first. The first was a band called Sizzle. Where um, two of two of my best friends at that time, we were we were in a band. Uh, we were in a band that won like the Battle of the Bands in in some of the local high schools. And uh, those those two friends were older than me, so they had graduated already. And they joined this they joined this band that was more of a it's more of a show band. It was a four piece four piece band with three singers up front playing all of today's hits in in nineteen eighty three. Uh, there are a lot of good hits from that year. So, so they they went on the road, and when it came time for uh, for them to get rid of the guitar player they had, they were like, "Come on, we need you to do this." And I remember going to going to a gig. My sister took me to a gig that they were doing. I think I was I was sixteen, but I don't think I was legally able to drive by myself yet. So my sister, or maybe not legally able to drive after dark or something. So my my sister took me to this gig and afterwards we just watched them. And afterwards the, the, the leader of the band came to my house and asked my dad, it was an early gig. Afterwards, the singer and band leader asked my dad if I could go to Detroit the next day. He said he needed me to go to Detroit. And, you know, of course my parents were like, no, he has school tomorrow. Uh, but I, I ended up going anyway. Did you just sneak away? And, or did no, you convince no. them? No, yeah, it was it it was it was a money gig, so you know, I was making a little bit of making a little bit of cash. So the following summer, you know, I'm 16, I I was free, so I went on the road, and you know, we we had formed a new band at that point based off of off of the other band, and it was it was a blast. 
How long were you on tour for then? Like when you said you went on tour for the summer, is it, did you all, you know, two, three months out on the road shows? Yeah, we we would, we would go for, you know, a couple months at a time, sometimes, you know, sometimes two months at a time and, and, you know, spend a week in one place, two weeks in another place, sometimes one night in, in another place. And what kind of shows were they? It was mostly clubs and hotel lounges and, it was it was party time. It was fun stuff. <laughs> so I was exposed to to all kinds of all kinds of fun stuff at that point. <laughs> and and I was and I was with my best friends. So it was it was a great time. And so after I guess a couple of summers of touring with this band and and playing with them, what happened next? Did you go off to college at some point? Were you still in this band? That was that was the plan. I I had, I had thought about going going up to Boston, going to Berkeley, and. Uh, instead I just stayed on the road. I, I just kept, kept playing. And I think I was, uh, I was 19 and, you know, after, after traveling around the country, I was 19 and I got married at very rock and roll, which was, yeah, which was a very, very, you know, <laughs> surprise to me. And that, that, you know, that changed things a little bit. So I started teaching full time, started teaching guitar in a local, local store. This is out outside of Philly. And, um, that that became my life. It became, you know, wife and a kid and then another kid. And then I was just teaching, but I was still, I was still gigging, still playing, you know, doing, doing some local stuff. At one point I had played with an Elvis impersonator, uh, Elvis Rocco from, from Delaware. Of course, uh, Elvis Rocco from Delaware. Sure. I know him well. Yeah, he was, he was great. It was, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> did he have like a standing show? Is that what it was? Like, did Elvis Rocco have a, have a, have like a, residency somewhere or was no he no also no residency it was it was yeah it was just it was just, it was all local gigs tri-state area so there you are with a couple of kids a wife you're outside of philly you're playing yeah. around locally yeah what changed what what happened next um i got divorced that'll do it <laughs> that's a that's a big change uh i mean i was i was doing a lot of playing but even before i before i got divorced actually i started I reconnected with my, you know, my best friends that I was playing with before. And we, we had started a new band because there was, there was a, there was a gig. So, so we, you know, the gig was there, so we needed to play. So I would, I would drive hours to just to, to do gigs and then, you know, go back home and then teach full time and, you know, and be, be a dad full time. And it, it was, it was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of driving and it was a lot of, you know, push and pull, but it was, I felt like it was working, but it was keeping me away too much. And, you know, and, and things in the marriage just weren't right. We were too young. You know, it was, it was, it was all about timing. I wouldn't change a thing as far as, as far as the way, you know, I love my kids and I wouldn't change a thing about that. The only thing I would change is how I handled certain situations. But what evolved from that was me moving back to Philly meeting meeting more musicians you know moving back to the city meeting more musicians kind of spreading things out i was doing a lot of sessions a lot of a lot of studio stuff in the city and uh more just more gigs and the more the more people i started working with the more i spread started spreading out started going to new york to do sessions how were people finding you like how do people know is this just word of mouth people just knew that there was this amazing guitarist and uh, that was available for these sessions i mean how how were you Kind of yeah, I think it was it was word of mouth. It wasn't you know it wasn't this you know there's this amazing guitarist. There was oh my friend can play, <laughs> and 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 he's cool to hang out with. So so let's work with him. I'm going to bring him in instead. So yeah, so I, I you know started taking the train up to New York, carrying a bunch of guitars, and doing sessions up there and working for different labels. And that went, one thing led to another, and then. And then I'm on the road with an artist that's, uh, you know, that's signed to a label, signed to a major label. And Who is that? Um, his name was Myron. And I was actually doing, I was doing gigs with Myron in Philly. He got signed to, to Island, to Island Records. And I was, I was working on his record with him. He wrote a song for uh, a brand new group, brand new R&B group called Drew Hill. And he, he ended up writing their first single and it was a smash. And then I ended up because they were on the same label. I ended up working with Drew Hill, so I went on the road with them, and that you know that just man that that blew up. Those guys blew up, and then all of a sudden we're doing all these TV shows, and we're you know we're all over the place. I come out to LA, and I was like, oh yeah, this is where I should have been my entire life. 
<laughs> which I, I had always wanted to come to LA. But in all your time touring, you never made it out to LA. No, no, I never made it out this far um, until, until I was touring with Drew Hill. Always wanted to, you know, when I was a kid growing up and hearing stories about, you know, Hendrix playing at the whiskey and the doors playing at the whiskey and the whiskey was someplace I always wanted to play. You know, that was, that was an aspiration. <laughs> yeah. Was this your opportunity to actually play there? Uh, yeah. Once I did play at the whiskey, it was, it was actually after I had moved out to LA because I, I, I was on the road with Drew Hill. And at one point, I think I, I basically just said, Hey, next time we're, uh, next time we get a break, I'm you know, fly me back to LA. Cause that's where I live now. <laughs> I didn't have anything. I didn't have, I had already gotten rid of an apartment in Philly and had stuff in storage. And I think just let go after a while. I didn't even just stop paying the storage. It might still be all there. That stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, 30 years, 30 years later. So I, I just, you know, I came out to LA with, with nothing but, you know, a couple of suitcases and guitars and, and started doing sessions. And were these sessions that were coming to you just because, you know, you obviously had this pedigree, you had these connections back home, all this yeah. kind of stuff, they were able to sort of connect you to some folks who were looking. Yeah. And because I, because I was out here, I'd been doing shows with, you know, with a major artist. My very first show in LA was, uh, was at the Coliseum. Oh, wow. It was at the LA Coliseum, which, which is, that was a huge show. It's my first time in LA, you know, big, big crowd, big festival kind of thing. And, and, you know, I thought, okay, yeah, I, I need to stay. I like the palm trees. I like the weather. This is pretty awesome. I love LA. So yeah, I, I and I didn't, I didn't really know anybody here. I knew I had some connections, but I didn't really know anybody. So I was living in hotels mainly. And I, you know, pretty much all I knew were the, you know, the fancier, the nicer hotels in West Hollywood, because that's where I'd stayed before. But, you know, I realized after a while that, you know, when you pay, you know, a couple hundred bucks a night, <laughs> it goes really fast. Yeah, it's a little fancy way to live. Yeah. So I went from one hotel to another trying to work out different rates and get, you know, get it cheaper. But I lived in hotels for, for months. I think it was a prob- probably a good six month run of living in hotels you know, being on and off the road, coming, coming and going. And I, I remember I was staying at, at, a, at a hotel right off of, right off of sunset. And I thought I gotta, I gotta go somewhere else. And I had met someone who said, Oh, my friend, uh, my friend lives on the West side. You should move closer to her. Cause she has a lot of connections. And so I hung out with her a little bit and, and, you know, made some new friends. So I ended up in the best Western and Westwood, definitely a lot cheaper than, than the, <laughs> yeah. uh, than the West Hollywood hotels, <laughs> you know, a whole lot cheaper than the Mondrian and, and the Chateau. Yeah. And the Chateau. So, um, so that was probably, I, I think I did like another two or three weeks in that hotel. And then, then that friend said, Oh, you should, you should meet Doug, Doug, you know, Doug lives in the Valley and he's from Philly. And I was like, Oh yeah, I know, I know Doug. Oh, I you actually Doug knew Philly. Doug. Yeah. I knew Doug, Doug. I, I had met Doug cause Doug was from Philly. And I had met him at a party in Philly a couple of years before when he was visiting. So he lived in Encino and, and we started working together. And so then I went out to the, the Sportsman's Lodge. I stayed at the Sportsman's Lodge for a while. If you or anyone listening knows that place, that's a pretty iconic, uh, iconic little hotel in Studio City. that has been there forever. And uh, I, I stayed at the Sportsman's Lodge. I worked a deal with them, a monthly deal. And I think I, I think I was I might have been there for a month and, until Doug was like, why don't you just stay here, man? You could sleep on the futon. So I, I pretty much lived at Doug's for, you know, maybe nine months on and off. And all through this time, though, are you going back out on tour with Drew Hill? Yeah, yeah. So this on is just a road. constant, yeah, a constant yeah. run back and forth from LA yeah. and wherever you're headed. But 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 Doug really gave me that that place to come home to, right? And um, Doug was also at that time he was he I think he he wasn't with. No, he was he was still playing with Body Count. He was a bass player in Body Count. He was Tina Marie's musical director, who I was a big fan of. And and we were producing together and writing together and living together. And it was an amazing, amazing experience of of creating, you know, it was really creating art for the first time in LA. Like who were you producing for at that time? At at that time, we were um we were producing another another artist from Philly. Uh, named Tracy Hazard, who's who's an amazing singer and awesome friend. We we're writing and producing Tracy, who uh, Tracy now sings with Ziggy Marley. She's been with him for years. She was also singing with 
with Tina Marie. And I had met Tracy before through some mutual friends and I was with Drew Hill. But Doug, going back to Doug, Doug Grigsby, who, who is an incredible musician, incredible producer. Uh, unfortunately, he had a stroke. Uh, Doug had a stroke several months ago and he's been in a coma ever since. Oh, wow. Sorry and he's, he's back in Philly. He's been in Philly for a while. So there's, uh, there, there is a GoFundMe page set up for, for Doug Grigsby. They need all the help they can get. And he's, he's, he's still around. He's still, uh, you know, I guess he opens his eyes every, every once in a while, which is good. But, um, I, I owe Doug a lot. I really do because he was the one that said, yeah, man, here, you, here's, this is, this is your home. It's crazy when you put roots down and you have people who you've known for a long time. And, you know, the longer you are here on earth, unfortunately, the, the, the more crappy stories you eventually kind of accumulate, you know, you've got all these good stories, but you know, things happen. Yeah. It's pretty rough. You got to enjoy the good stuff. Exactly. Every day, every minute, every moment. So tell me something. Yeah. You know, Prince, you were on tour with Prince. Yeah. You're his guy. (laughs) I was, I was one of many. One of many um, guys. I was I was I was fortunate enough to to be around him and and be exposed to the way he worked and and see what his work ethic was like and and see what his artistry was like and watch him create. Yeah, I mean he's just legendary. I, I, I hear stories of you know four hour concerts with another two hours of encores, like crazy things when he's home and things along those. Yeah, lines. and then and then he'll go and do a show in a club. Yeah. After that. Exactly. Just yeah. might as well have an after party and play some more. Right. Yeah, pretty amazing. How long were you working with him? Um, I was I was around the the Paisley Park family for for probably about I don't want to say anywhere from like four to five years on and off and you know, going back and forth. And we had, we had a project called Funky Baldheads. F-O-N-K-Y, Funky Baldheads. Everybody in the band was bald. <laughs> when Prince would join us on stage, he he wore i think he wore a hat every time <laughs> he he would not he would not wear a bald cap he wouldn't do it uh, and there was no no asking him to shave his head he wouldn't do that well, no. as as a follically challenged man myself i would never ask someone to shave their head even if they have bad hair you still got to enjoy it we actually the hair. did what in the very <laughs> beginning you know um kirk johnson who at, at the time was prince's drummer said uh you know he called me and said you know i hear you uh hear you you're bald and, and I hear you, you're funky. So, uh, why don't you come up, come up and work on this project? That's a ridiculous phone call. I hear you're bald and uh, funky. Yeah. Come on up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come on up to Prince's place. So, um, so I did, I, and I went out to Minneapolis and went to Paisley park and, and was blown away. And still, every time I go back there, the last time I was there was a couple of years ago when we did, uh, we did, did the Prince celebration. I'm now in a band called the funk soldiers, which is a combination of a lot of musicians that were, that were in the, the Prince sphere over, over the years. So it's, it's an amazing band, you know, of people that had all been through his boot camp. Yeah. I guess that would be a, an appropriate term for it. Cause I, you yeah. know, I, I can imagine if you're trying to keep up with him and the yeah. way he goes and how hard he goes, then, you know, yeah, yeah. it would be. Yeah. Nobody, nobody works as hard as he used to work. I mean, that, that was, it was like he didn't sleep. You had to ex- expect a call at any time to be there anytime. And everybody that's that's been through that experience knows that there is no harder working person in show business than Prince was. So amazing experience. I, I learned a lot from, you know, not not just musically, but on the business side, you know, of him him constantly saying no, no labels, no management, no, you know, stay independent. And this was you're talking early 2000s. You're talking 99, 2000, 2001, when when there were still major deals happening, you know. And this is still like pre Napster or the onset of Napster, and but but there was still a lot of records being sold. He's saying stay independent, and and at that time he he was still the artist formerly known as Prince, right? Going through that legal battle, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I I think I was I was around when he when he started using the Prince name again when that contract ran out. And so there was, there was a lot to learn. And I, I just kept my eyes and ears open every time I was there and, you know, spend as much time there as I could, but I was still on the road with Drew Hill. Oh, all this time. Yeah. I was going, I was going back and forth left. left I think I, well, Drew Hill kind of split up. Cisco went solo. I did a little bit of stuff with Cisco. My first time on Saturday night live, 
was with Cisco. So I I was super excited. Did you play on the thong song? Well, I didn't play on the record because there there was actually no guitar on the record. But but we came up with some pretty pretty cool <laughs> arrangements for those for those two chords in that song. Um, so yeah, I got to play on Saturday Night Live, which was a dream. Yeah, since, since I was a child, since you know, since I would try and stay up late watching that show every Saturday mm-hmm. since I was a kid, and you know, and all, all those iconic performances on Saturday Night Live were you know, were in my head while I was walking through those doors and, you know, go, going up those elevators. But I had to play the thong song. <laughs> With a badge Saturday. of, it's a badge of honor to play the thong song on yeah. SNL. Yeah. Biggest, biggest joke ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, it was an amazing experience because I got to, you know, I got to see how they did things and watch the production there. And I was, I was pretty, uh, <laughs> I was pretty amazed. Yeah. That place is a machine. Oh yeah. I, I got to go back again several years later with Christina Aguilera. Never heard of her. No, no. nobody has. She's up and coming, um, I think. Is that, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Indie. Right. Yeah. Hope I wish um, her the best, you know, hopefully someone recognizes <laughs> her. Yeah. Wow. So that must've been exciting. What, what's, uh, what songs did you play? Like what, what era of that, of Christina Aguilera was it? That was, that was promo for the stripped record. So that was, that was 2002, I believe when we did Saturday Night Live. Um, so we played beautiful, I think it was beautiful and fighter two songs from that record, which are still huge songs for her. Um, but I, I've, I've been working with Christina since then. So it seems to me like you're, you're pretty much collecting these people. Like you're, you're, you're working with them and then you keep working with them. It just keeps going when they need you, you call you. Christina was on and off. Um, I actually, I left Christina in 2004 and did a tour with Anastasia in Europe came back and did a tour. I started working with new kids on the block. We did So I did, did new kids on the block, backstreet boys, boys to men, 98 degrees, um, TLC. Uh, there's, I think there was a couple others thrown in there, but it was all, it was all on new kids tours playing with all these different artists. And that, that was a, just about a 10 year run with them. What were the new kids like? What was that like playing with a, with a really pure pop act? And I guess all the other acts that, that, that are occupying a similar type of genre. What was that like as a rock guy coming to utter pop world? Well, I was, I, I mean, I, I didn't consider myself a rock guy. I've always wanted to be in a rock band, which I've been in many over the years, but none, none super successful that, you know, that, that anybody would know. Uh, actually, well, Funky Baldheads was, that was pretty much rock. It was rock, funk, R&B, all mixed together. But Going into the new kids thing, when I got the call for that, I actually thought it was a joke because they hadn't done anything in so long. And uh, I, I never liked them. I never liked the music. I was, you know, back in the you know, late 80s, early 90s, thought, oh, this guys suck. So I got, in, I got into rehearsals and, and it, was, it was my friends that, that I had worked with before with Christina. It was Rob Lewis, Nathan Farmer, and they're, they're like my brothers anyway. We had already lived together on the road. So... Uh, I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. And I think in the beginning, I, I, didn't, I don't think they realized that it was going to be as big of a comeback as it was because there, there weren't, I don't think there were that many shows booked at first, but next thing we knew we were out for like 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. That and, thing exploded. Uh, what started yeah, as a joke and then it really wasn't. Right. Right. And, and musically th- those songs are hits. Those songs are well-crafted, well-written pop songs which I didn't appreciate back in the day. But, you know, in 2008, when I started working with them, I, I, was, I was listening like, oh, wow, okay, I see, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I see the process of how, how it was done. And, those, and playing those songs were it's like, you know, when you play a hit song with the artist that originally recorded that song, it's actually pretty cool. It's pretty special. I, I remember wondering why Liza Minnelli was famous. Because all I knew her from was just effectively being old and on the Muppets or something like that. And then finally, <laughs> Arthur. I, she was. In oh, Arthur. yeah. Arthur. Yeah, exactly. Like I knew her from that. And I'm like, I really don't get and it. And she like, was Judy Garland's daughter. So they were. But even still, point. I knew why Judy Garland was famous because, you know, right. yeah. that, that I understood. Wizard of Oz, of course. But why was Liza famous? I never had seen her obviously perform her own real stuff. And then right. one day, I don't know what it was. I put on Cabaret and I watched it. I don't know why I watched it. Who the hell's putting on cabaret? I was like, you know, 
28 years old and I put on cabaret for some weird reason. And she, you, were, you were high? I was very were- high, yes. <laughs> it, that had to have been it. And I was just like, she is amazing. Like, I actually got it at that point. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, you don't, I didn't necessarily, you know, love her when I was watching her as a kid on The Muppets. But when you see somebody doing the thing that they're actually excellent at and that they're known for, there's a reason yeah. that they're out there. You yeah. know, you may not love them. I mean, similarly, uh, uh, Dolly Parton was always somebody that, that was always, again, like on the Muppets or on a Sesame street type thing. I never really understood what the, what the fascination right. was. You know, she's later. an icon, but if you're not a fan, yeah, so really I never appreciate it. it. But now yeah. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. And I've yeah. gone back and listened to some of her older stuff and, yeah. like, and she writes it all. And she's had so many hits and she's the one behind them and she's the yeah. one who performs them the best. So yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating to kind of have a different perspective. Yeah. Although I, I couldn't, I couldn't compare Liza Minnelli or Dolly Parton to the new kids, but they're all the same, but, <laughs> but, Don, <laughs> but Donnie, Donnie Wahlberg has an amazing vision. Donnie, Donnie, you know, envisions something and, and he makes it happen. And he's, he's an awesome leader. And I've watched, I've watched him work over the years and he's, he's, he's pretty brilliant when it comes to performance and knowing what his fans want. Yeah. That's an art in and of itself. Which, yeah, a lot of performers have no idea what their fans want. They don't think about the fans. He's constantly thinking about, what do my fans want? How can we make this better for them? And that's and their shows got better and better, production-wise, musically. And we were doing some, some musical shit that was so far beyond what we should be playing on a New Kids song. And, and, and that, was, that was kind of, for us as musicians to make it more interesting, but it was also adding to the energy of the show and, and taking these songs that were kind of cheesy pop songs and making them these big arena songs. And it, and it worked. Well, and as you're, as you're saying, it's like an, a big hit, a hit song winds up translating really well when you make it into an arena song, make it into a pop song. You can take that same song, turn it into a country song. You turn it into it. it those, yeah. those, those truly excellent songs can cross genres and, and, find an audience in a lot of different places just Absolutely. depends on what you put behind them and who's who's infusing them with it a slightly different flavor right yeah and we we infused all kinds of flavors mm-hmm. into into the new kids tours which it didn't go unnoticed because a lot of their fans really really like that we had we had fans as a band as the the four piece new kids band we had we had fans and and that was uh, you know that was the onset of Twitter too, so then we had a connection with the fans, and their fans started following us, which was which is amazing. That was the first time I'd really seen that kind of fanatical reaction. Did you get any stalkers? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I I had never seen fans like that. Period for any artist ever, because they truly are fanatical. They love them. I mean, a lot of a lot of the, their fans that grew up listening to them when they were 12, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old fell in love with those guys. And I listened to a lot of stories from fans over the years, and they said they were my first love. See, that's really sweet when you're 11 or 12, but when you're like 35, that's just crazy. Yeah. 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 yeah when you're 35 or 40 and you're maxing out your credit cards <laughs> yeah. and, and taking a second mortgage on your house just to follow them around and getting a divorce because of it, that's... You might have a problem. A little bit of an issue. But, but. But thanks for coming to the show. Right. Yeah. And, and follow your dreams. <laughs> no, it, it, it truly is amazing to see fans like that and, and, and how much they love and respect those guys. And I, I love those guys. I don't know if, I, you know, I can't say I'll never work with them again, but my, my, my liver needed a break. <laughs> <laughs> they were big partiers. Um, we we would go on stage with a drink and you know and have fun with all those dance moves and everything. I mean that's that's just hazardous. I had a guitar tech who was an amazing bartender. I've had several guitar techs <laughs> that were amazing bartenders, and they would they would they would keep the band full and uh, and and full of fun. <laughs> it was great. It, it made it made the show more exciting for us. Well, tell me a little bit about that because there's a lot of time between performances when you're on the road. And not time that you necessarily are going home, but like time between the tonight show and the next night show. Like, were you filling it with good, healthy working out and, you know, going to the library or, you know, were you guys out partying? Sometimes. I mean, not, not a lot of, not a lot of partying 
like our partying was kind of done during the shows. So, and, and well, especially with new kids, there weren't a lot of nights off. We would do, um, you know, we would do six shows in a row, which is, which is a lot. And then pack up, move for a day and go to the next city. For Well, no, I mean, do a show, pack up, go to the next venue, do a show, pack up, go to the next city. And, and, you know, there, well, there, we, we did do, I think we did two or three nights in a row at the ACC in Toronto. Right. We do love our new kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. New kids are big in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a moment where, um, you know, where it, we're definitely more health conscious and we're trying to work out. I actually got in great shape on, on tour with those guys because they were work. they were all working out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought a bike on tour. So I had a bike on, you know, on one of the trucks. So I would grab my bike during the day, go for rides. If it was, if it was cold outside or raining, I would ride around the, the concourse of the arena. And, and usually most, most arenas are uh, a quarter, quarter mile around a quarter mile or half. I think it's a quarter mile around depending on the arena. So I would get a workout. Just, yeah, I would work out. And at one point, all of us in the band and a bunch of the crew guys were doing, uh, we're doing a workout routine. I forget which, which DVDs we were using, but one of the guys would set up a laptop and pop in the DVDs and, so so yeah we 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 were trying to get healthy we were we were trying to be healthy and and I've always tried to eat healthy but then we did you know quite a bit of drinking <laughs> Hey you got to reward yourself after that long bike ride Exactly you know exactly crack a beer But we life. mostly just drank while we worked so it was okay Multitasking again yeah. really clever work life hacks everyone life hacks Yeah Oh definitely multitasking because we were also working out at the same time because we we're you know we we're doing our dance moves and we were on our feet for three and a half hours Right so you're getting your aerobics, you're getting your your vitamins from from bourbon and vodka, I'm assuming, and yeah, uh, you mostly know, vodka. There yeah. you go. Well, it's it's basically the diet alcohol, you know. Yeah, low carbs. Exactly. So without <laughs> all of this, I mean, insanity. You're on the road. You've basically been on the road for like thirty years. Yeah. Who helps you with this? Who would you do? You have a team. Do you have who who takes care of your who feeds your cat when you're away? Who <laughs> makes sure that you you know if your hotel room is screwed up? Who's helping you out here? Like. It, it, it would take an army to follow you around. Um, no, no cat, but, but, <laughs> but two, two big dogs here now. Um, um, well, I've, I've been, I've been married for 17 years. So my wife has, has taken on, you know, we, we've been together over 20 years, so uh, I couldn't do it without her for sure. I mean, I probably be lost. I would have probably drowned somewhere, but I mean, she travels a lot too. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of give and take. Is she in the in this line of business, or is she a civilian? She's an entertainment. She's a publicist, mostly for for actors. But I, I've never had I've never had a manager. I've never had anybody really looking out on the business side. That's one thing I I like looking back. I wish I would have learned more is business. I wish I I wish I would have studied some legal stuff when I was a kid because I've I've been through several several situations where. If I had a good lawyer or I really knew what I was doing as far as business, I'd probably be wealthy. Been able to capitalize a little bit better on some of the stuff. Right. Yeah. Or, or I wouldn't have gotten screwed. Or not as much. Because, uh, I don't think anyone yeah. can avoid getting screwed. I mean, I think it happens right. to everybody once or twice. Hopefully you don't have it happen numerous times and the same way over and over again. Right. I'll, 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 I'd be happy with just a much smaller screw. No one's ever said that. Size matters. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I that's that's the one thing I wish I could go back and and do is learn more business. What do you think would have been the most important thing? Was it was it the legal side of things? Would it be the marketing side of things? Would it be like what part uh, of the business elements would it be? Pre- the the legal side, the legal side for sure. Yeah, just to make sure you were secured when you when you yeah. get a bunch of papers or because I'm assuming with each one of these uh, acts, anytime you're engaged, I mean, were they just sending a contract to your house? And then you were sitting there. You were the one reading it. Oh, for for touring and stuff like that. Yeah, or well, recording. That, I, yeah, I've I've never really been screwed as far as the the touring side. It's mostly mostly on the studio. You know, the the the, the writing, the production, the playing. You know, that it's mostly studio when it comes to to intellectual property. Right. So it has to do with things like residuals getting paid, making sure yeah. that you're listed correctly and that you get what's exactly. coming to you basically. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've gone uncredited on so many recordings. Want to get credit for them right now? Call them all out. Here's the listing. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it's a, it's a long list. We don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, that's something I really wish that I would have known better. Like I, I wish I would have known the Funk Brothers stories. You know, the, the the guys that developed and created all the sounds of Motown, who were the musicians that were in there every day recording. They should have gotten writing credit on everything, right? And they they didn't know. Those guys didn't know. They were playing clubs at night, and they'd go. You know, they'd go into the studio the next day, and Smokey Robinson wrote this amazing song, but who knows how to play it? These guys come up with all the rest of it. Oh, wow. So they were never credited? Nobody got anything for any of that? No. Wow. And didn't guys like Smokey actually also not get a lot of credit, or they didn't get a lot of pay for the work they were doing? Yeah, I think, well, Smokey became an artist himself, so I think he he had a different path than the musicians that were playing on the stuff. And Smokey's amazing. I, I got I got to work with Smokey a very brief brief moment in rehearsals for a TV show that never happened, uh, which that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we get to the section of TV shows that never happened, it's we'll, another we'll, list. We'll that, but yeah, <laughs> Smokey's incredible, and he's he's his work ethic is is unbelievable. But he took a different path, and he was he was an awesome songwriter. He wrote so many hits in the, that Motown era, but he also had a voice. He also had a unique voice, which, you know, which made him a superstar. So he had a, he had a different path. He, he was, Smokey did okay. But all the musicians that were, you know, just sitting in that tiny room, which I don't know if you've ever had the chance to, to go to, to the, the Motown studio in, in Detroit. It's, it's pretty amazing to take that tour and hear the stories and, and actually be in the room where they recorded all those songs. It's incredible. So you're, you're not just playing on other people's records, on other people's stages. Right. You're not even just playing in your own band. You're not even just doing music. Right. You're scoring film and TV. Yeah. You just said, you, you told me earlier you're going to build a, a VO studio for, for audio books. I mean, where are you headed with all of this between music and recording, performance and everything? Is there a, a place you're trying, something you're trying to achieve? Trying to achieve it all, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cause I, I love doing it all. I love scoring. I love, you know, film and TV. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap up a film score right now that I've been working on for months and it's, it's an amazing process because this is a, this is the first time I'm actually scoring an entire film completely by myself. What's that process like? Uh, it's lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it can be very frustrating is it lonely to do it all on your own? Like, do you I don't miss mind having that. people? I don't mind that part of it. I definitely miss interacting with other musicians and other writers, and, which I still do every once in a while on other projects. But on this project, it's all, you know, it's pretty much just me by myself. And, you know, the interaction is with the director and producers of the film. But it's, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty eye-opening experience for me because I'm, learning all kinds of new instruments, learning about new instruments, learning different genres of music, different, different styles, different uh, music from all over the world. In, in, this, in this film that I'm working on, there's, um, there's, there's different realms as well as different parts of, you know, parts of the world. There's, there's a scene in Mexico. There's, there's scenes in Arizona. There's scenes in mystical Chinese world. So there's all different kinds of elements that have to fuse together in this in this film. Is this the new James Bond? Because you know, it sounds pretty interesting. I wish. Oh right? no, I wish it was. Because <laughs> that would be amazing. No, this is this is more of a, a fantasy. It's kind of kind of Goonies meets Big Trouble in Little China. When does it come out? Um, hope hopefully release and hopefully released uh, around this time next year. I would imagine, you know, or sooner. I'm not sure of a release date yet, but you know, we're still in, still in post on it. Still working on. How did these folks find you? Are these folks you knew? Do you know the director? I actually, yeah, I've, I've known the director for years and he's, I, you know, I knew him as an actor, but I'd known he had, he had directed a few things and he had done some, some independent films and he, we ran into each other in a, in a bar one night, which I don't, I don't go out very often, but I was hanging out with some friends and we said, let's, let's go to this Tiki bar in North Hollywood and there we go. A deal was made. Got a movie out of it. Yep. And there, there are other projects that have come up over the years. Just, you know, it's through, it's through relationships, which I think is the most important thing in, in the entertainment business. Aside from like knowing the legal shit. Right. 
uh, relationships and entertainment are the most important thing. Well, how have you been affected by the fact that obviously the whole world's been effectively shut down? I mean, you've had this movie to do, but it's pretty hard to go out and have a drink with somebody these days. And to meet somebody new is pretty darn difficult. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the work equivalent of, of dating during COVID. It's, yeah. it's no good. I've, well, I've, I've, I've created new relationships just on, on zoom, you know, being introduced to different people and, and, oh, here's, let's work on this project. Okay. Let's get on zoom, talk about it. So, you know, you can sit on zoom with a drink. Yep. We've all done that. If you say you haven't, you're lying. I, I <laughs> did it the other night and it was, and it was great. It was great to interact with people, but for the most part, I've been, I've been working on this film. There's an artist that I've been working with for the last three years and, you know, helping her develop her sound and, and writing with her and producing. And we're, uh, we're up to, I think, 20, 23 songs now. Who's this artist? Her name is Money, M-U-N-N-Y. Uh, and I, I, I love her. She's so, she's so much fun to work with. She's so positive. She's always super creative. And she also loves what I put into it which that makes a big difference. I mean, I can't think of any time where she's come back to me and said, no, I don't, I don't really like that. I don't think that works. But even if she did, you would have that kind of back and forth. It would, yeah, you have there's to been be times, to there's been times where I, where I said to her, I did this and I'm not sure about it. What do you think? <laughs> but she's, she gives me the freedom to, to take, you know, a verse that she came up with that she sang into her phone on her, on her voice memo She'll give me the freedom to build that out and create, help create an entire song out of that, which I love doing. And and she's got brilliant ideas that turn into that turn into really cool songs. So now we've added a whole other thing because you're 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 producing for other people, you're writing for other people, you're also doing the movie, you're also doing TV, you're also doing the touring. How are you balancing this all out? Like, how do you actually are you able to schedule a day? Do you do all of these things at different times? Do you block off half your year knowing you're going to do a movie and do nothing else? How do you make those decisions? That's something I'm not great at is scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> the day gets 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 away from me so easily and so quickly, especially, you know, in these these times where we're at home, where you can always think, oh, I'll just do it later because I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. And then the day gets away from you. That happens quite often. Um, it's it's even it's hard for me to say, like I recently put a workout schedule in my calendar where I said, okay, 10 o'clock every morning, I'm going to, I'm going to get on the bike and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get on the Peloton. I'm going to ride. Sometimes, you know, that that's been like nine, 9 PM. I get on the bike, but I, you know, I have to schedule time for that, but scheduling in the work has been really tough right now. I'm focusing on the film to try and finish that out and get it done. That's my primary focus. There's a couple other projects where I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a couple Christmas songs for a friend. I'm doing a live stream next, I think it's Sunday, next Sunday with my friend Dee Dee Foster for her Christmas thing. So little little things constantly pop up and guitar sessions always come in. Are you mostly doing the sessions remotely? I mean, you're not going into studio oh, yeah. now, but in general, when somebody says, hey, I need a track done, do they, they send you the mix and you you yeah. play along with it, send it back to them kind of thing. You get some notes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just just upload files. That's I mean, there's something pretty excellent about that. And there's obviously something. I love it. Well, I've, I've been doing that for years anyway. You know, having having a studio at you know at my house makes it a lot easier. And I've been doing that for years. So I already knew the process. And I, I think I, I already kind of had it down to a science when it comes to to uploading tracks for for people. But it's still there's still nothing like being in a studio, being in a big studio with a bunch of players. I did get the opportunity to do that a few months ago. My friend Ludo uh, Ludo Louis, who's a is an awesome trumpet player, played with Lenny Kravitz. He played played on uh, or recently he's been on Dancing with the Stars the last couple seasons. And he he just went back to France, which which is where he's from. But before he left for France, he said, "I I want to I want to get a bunch of guys together and and finish this record I'm working on here in L.A. before I go back to to Paris." So. We all put our masks on and went into a studio in North Hollywood and had a day of magic. That must have been all the better in lieu of these times, just oh, actually yeah. getting an, uh, an opportunity to get in a room with a bunch of people. And yeah, and it, it really felt like like we made some magic that day. There's some really cool stuff that that went down. I have to ask 
as somebody who has had an extraordinary career, traveled the world, played the biggest stages, as well as some of the smallest stages, but with some of the most well-known artists in history. What is it like to be backing them up? I mean, you got in this to play and to be, I'm assuming, to be a rock star, like we all dream to be. Are you living your rock star fantasy, or is there a part of you that wishes that you were up at the mic? At, at, well, at this point, I, I kind of like being at home. I like being here with my family every day and enjoying the sunshine. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was on the road. You know, all of last year, we were out with Christina. We were playing some gigantic festivals all over the world. You know, we, we spent, I think it was this time last year, we were still in Europe. And you know we we did we did some really cool shows. We did the Pori Jazz Festival in Finland, which is which was awesome. And I, I love to travel. I love I love different cultures and I love exploring different cities. And and yeah, I do love the show and I love the energy of the crowd and you know being on stage. And even if even if my spotlight is a lot smaller and you know I only get the big spotlight for a very brief moment, it's a it's a fucking cool thing. It really is. Is this, there's, there is nothing like that. Even in Vegas, the Vegas show we did with Christina, where um, me and, and uh, Larry Flex, the bass, the bass player, who's been playing with Christina the last few years, we, we had our, our shot at where we, would, we were you know, downstage, on the thrust, spotlights just on us, you know, solid rock and roll for like a good three and a half minutes. <laughs> And then we're back up to our positions. Yeah. <laughs> they let you out of your cage for a little while. Yeah. Did you go back yeah. to back? Uh, yeah, we did. Nice. We did. We did. <laughs> the very, the very, the very, the very end of the song was the two of us back to back in the middle of this big X with lights flashing. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, that's my dream. A, it's oh. such a, it's such a, such a cool feeling. Um, and then, and then when the lights go, you know, the, the entire stage goes black. We have to figure out how we're not going to trip over each other. <laughs> Trying to get back, trying to get back to our positions that are twelve feet above the stage, right in the pitch black. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever fall off the stage uh, on one of those, or no? Um, no, no, I haven't. Fortunately, I mean, I, I've fallen off of stages before, but that was back <laughs> in like playing in clubs in Philly, right? But yeah, I, I do. You know, part of me misses the performance aspect, but I really, when it comes down to it, I really, I, I love being creative. What is it about being creative that just that that, that keeps you going i think it's once once it's final i mean I, I love the process i love everything about the process and hearing something in my head and then putting down a skeleton which sounds nothing like what's in my head but then building it and watching it grow into something else that either exceeds what was in my head or or gets close and then i have to figure out how to get it closer or above i just i love i love the process I love being able to say, "Oh, uh, you know, uh, I'll put banjo on this, even though it, even though it shouldn't have banjo on it, or you know, put a put a strange instrument in that that sounds weird, but it might just work, or the or the kind of thing that I'll put in, and somebody will say, "What the hell is that? That sounds cool. What is that in the background?" And I, I love all the the little details of production. Um, and more recently, I've gotten into mixing. I've been mixing all the money stuff. Um, I also mixed a single that I that I co-wrote with Saida Garrett earlier earlier in the year i don't know if if, if you're familiar with saida garrett she's she she's one of my favorite songwriters after like you know lennon and mccartney and she she wrote man in the mirror for michael jackson she's written she's saida has written a ton of hits and she is phenomenal she's she's so good uh, i've had the the fortunate experience of working with her and being her friend for the last 20 years or so and she's she's amazing. I co-wrote her, you know, one of her solo records with her, and we've just written all kinds of stuff over the years just to write, just to have fun, not necessarily saying, okay, let's write for this, which we have done that too. But there's been plenty of times where it was just like, okay, let's just write a song. But we we wrote a song like like that where it was just like, okay, let's here's another song that we're writing, not specifically for anything, which we had done it a couple of years ago, and it and it's. It was a very meaningful song. Her lyrics were incredible, and I was blown away. And she sang the crap out of it. And I, you know, I produced it in my my studio at home. And after after George Floyd was killed, 
it was we were coming up on on his funeral and and Saida and her husband Eric as her manager said we got to take that song um new frontier because it it was speaking exactly about that but it mentioned Trayvon Martin and it mentioned other murders that had taken place several years before so Saida rewrote rewrote the second verse i think she i think it might have been both verses she kind of rewrote and she added George Floyd's name to the to the song. She added Breonna Taylor's name to the song. So it was extremely relevant, you know, at, at the time. And it sucks. It's it's fucked up that she had to add names to this song to update it, which, you know, I hope it never has to be updated again. But we finished that song and released it. Um, the song's called New Frontier. And it's under Saida Garrett's name. It's out there on all the on all the streaming platforms and the video is super cool. And we've gotten a chance to perform it a few times too, since then Uh, we did, we've done, we did a live stream one Sunday morning for the Agape church, which was super cool. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of people watching and listening. It was the first time we performed that. And we got to perform it again uh, at the Rose bowl. We did a, we did a a drive-in concert at the Rose bowl for uh, a a nonprofit called uh, uh, race to erase MS, which is a, an MS uh, fundraising organization that that probably raises more money for ms research than any other organization uh, it's nancy davis's organization and she's she does incredible things but we we were we were able to perform the song for that and it was it was pretty cool so i've got, i've gotten the chance to mix different things that were released over the last year and and just out of necessity you know that's that's another job that i never thought i would have because i know so many amazing mix engineers and mixing is a that's like to me. That was like there's some voodoo involved in that. That's that's another that's another art form, and I never thought I would enjoy it. But when my when my rough mixes were getting pretty close, and other other mix engineers that I really admired were sending mixes back, and I thought, you know, I think my rough mix sounds better. And you know, like you know, money money listened to the you know first single that we did, and she said, I, I like your mix. So okay, well, I'm I'm a mix engineer now. <laughs> Now I'm doing that too. <laughs> and and that's that was a, that's that's a tough thing for me to say because I have so many great friends who are amazing mix engineers and they're probably looking at me like, "No, oh, you're not a mix engineer. You haven't been doing this your whole life." But I have. I I started recording and mixing stuff with two cassette decks when I was 12 years old in my mom's basement and trying to make things sound good with that and over the years of, you know, having my own studio at home whether it was cassette you know a four track cassette to an eight track cassette to a eight track reel to reel to a 16 track reel to reel to uh you know to something bigger and then it got bigger and then then computers you know once i got into pro tools i have been mixing my whole life and i didn't realize that but now i have most of the tools i need to do it so that's just it's another job well and speaking of tools what what sort of advice might you give to somebody who wants to get into music for their life to really actually make a living making music. I'd say versatility is probably the best tool. Be, be versatile. If you focus on one instrument, be as, as versatile as possible on that one instrument. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're playing bass, study every bass player out there, study every style of music and play all the different basses, you know, play electric, play fretless, play an upright, play a four string, play a five string, play a seven string, play an eight string, a 12 string bass, play it all. And be versatile enough to be able to cover any gig. That's that's how I feel as, as a guitar player. I know like almost any gig that comes up, I could say, yeah, I could I could do that gig. You know, I I would never say no to anything. If it's uh, you know if it's a challenge, I would never say no to it. I would definitely try it. But I'm sure there's some exceptions that would come up that would be like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> Actually, there there was there was one, there was one gig that I was like after after rehearsing, I was like, I can't do this gig. And that, and that was, that was, um, that was suicidal tendencies. Why? What was the problem? I think the music was too angry. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing where it wasn't, you know, I, I could physically do it, but I think me, I think the music for me was too, was too angry. It's the, the wrong energy for, for where I was at in my life at that time. You're just too happy. Yeah. And there were, <laughs> there were other things, there were other personal things going on. Like my, my oldest daughter was moving out from Philly. She was moving to LA and, and you know there were there were different things going on in my life 
that I thought, okay, you know, I have a young young son at home, my daughter's moving out. And that was a tough choice, but you know, that that didn't work out for the right reasons. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Uh, thanks for having me, man. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.